Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. What a lovely day. Great to be together in God's presence. Uh, we started to get some students trickling back in. Welcome back some students. Hello. Some students have been away for the last year and have returned after gap years. Ex-work experience years. Great to have you back. Um, Welcome, if you are new, my name is Matthew, one of the leaders here. It's uh, really good to have you here. If you are new, we've got loads of bits of information for you over on the Connect desk. We've got these uh, Connect books, which tell you a bit more about us, and we have Connect cards, which should be in the Bibles as well, that if you want to ask any questions or just let us know you've been here, uh, fill one of those in. We'd appreciate that. Um, just uh, one thing really to draw to your attention. We have our term cards. September is almost done. Wow. So we need to think about October, uh, and next Sunday, 1st of October, next Sunday, we have a prophetic evening, next Sunday evening, 7 o'clock here, John Groves from Winchester is going to be with us. Uh, John Groves is a good friend and uh, a wise pastor and prophetically gifted, and he's going to be helping us to think about how we can grow as a church in, uh, in, in the prophetic, hearing God speak to us through one another. Uh, over the last year, we've been gathering little group termally to try and stir up the prophetic gift. Uh, but this is for everybody in the church, so if you're at all interested, you're very, very welcome. Seven o'clock next Sunday evening. I'm sure it'll be a great time with John, so uh, come along to that, and let's look for God to stir up prophetic gift amongst us that we might more clearly hear what he has to say for us uh, in this time at this place. And uh, do grab one of these, and other things on there are relevant for you, I'm sure. Okay, let's uh, get into today's message. Oh, yeah, Grace and I are actually here for the whole service. The last couple of weeks have been rushing off down to 502, our other site, to speak thereafter. But I'm here for the whole morning. And Grace is with me, lurking at the back because she had a throat operation this week. Uh, those of you who uh, uh, are regulars will know that Grace hasn't been able to sing, hasn't been leading worship this year because she's had a, a thing on her throat and on Wednesday had a hemorrhage polyp chopped off her vocal cords. So she can't talk very much. So if she doesn't talk to you, I told her she should bring us a little sign explaining, so she didn't want to do that, so I'm explaining on her behalf. <laughs> so she can't talk very much, so uh, that's why she, she might not be talking to you as much as she normally would. But hopefully that will be fixed now and she'll be back singing soon. Um, let me ask you a question. Why, why are you here this morning? It's not a, it's not a trick question, it's a, a genuine one. Why are you here this morning? Let me suggest some possible answers. It might be out of habit, that this is what you do most Sundays, just it's your habit that you come along. It might be that actually it's kind of a bit more than a habit, it might be almost a sense of duty, a kind of responsibility that you feel that you ought to be here on a Sunday morning. Uh, I was thinking about, I, I haven't missed a Sunday morning since August last year. The only times I haven't been here at Gateway is when I was, I've been speaking at other churches. So every Sunday I've been in church, apart from one Sunday in February when I was in the bathroom because I had food poisoning. But apart from that, every Sunday since last August I've been in church, either here or speaking in another church. Is, it just, is, it, is that because I'm, is that just duty? Is that, is that just because I'm paid to do it? Is that why I'm here each week? Are you here because of a desire for community, that this is where you come and you find your friends and you meet with people and have that sense of community? Is it because you're curious? Maybe you don't normally come to church, but you're curious about spiritual things, and so you've come today. Maybe it's because you're spiritually hungry that you know that you need to connect with God, 
And if you want to connect with God, then coming to meet with God's people feels like a sensible place to try and do that. Maybe you're here because you'd love to worship and you want to come and give praise to Jesus. I wonder why you're here. Also, I wonder what you're expecting to achieve, to be achieved by being here today. What, what is it going to do for you? What's it going to do for others? What's it, what's it going to do for God? And, and you know, these are, these are good questions to ask, actually, because we all have options. Uh, this morning is a lovely sunny morning. I checked the weather forecast before I came out. It's probably not going to be so sunny this afternoon. Looks like it might even be raining. So in terms of how you use your day, this morning you're sitting inside. This afternoon it's probably going to be raining. Perhaps you got the day the wrong way around. Perhaps you should have gone out to the beach this morning and then stayed inside this afternoon. You've got options. And there's all kinds of other things you could have done today. You could have been stuck inside with the curtains drawn watching a box set or you could have been down walking on the beach or you could have been out playing sports or you could have been at the shops. There's all kinds of options that we have. So why are we here? And what are we expecting to achieve? Now we're doing a five-part series at the moment looking at five statements which came out of the Reformation, this extraordinary, world-changing period of history when suddenly people understood things about God and his truth in a new way, in a fresh way, in a way which had often been obscured and buried in the previous centuries. And uh, we're looking at the five statements which summarize what the Reformation recognized, identified, and taught. And this period of history which we're looking at, the, the 16th century, people didn't have as many options as we do today. They, on a Sunday morning, they wouldn't have had as many options. They just weren't the same options for entertainment and travel and leisure. You, you were more restricted, and so church perhaps was perhaps one of the best options because you could go to church and you could find community and you could actually find some rest because the rest of the week you were digging turnips out of the mud. And so to come to church on a Sunday might have actually given you an hour's rest compared with the normal slavery and drudgery of your life. And also people would have gone to church because they would have felt to do so would have in some way have been uh, meritorious. That to go to church would in some way have earned merit. That to go to church would have been a good thing to do because somehow it would make God feel more positively towards you than otherwise he might have done. And then the Reformation broke in this fresh way of seeing things, this recovery of biblical truth, and suddenly it changed how people thought about all these things. It changed people's experience. It changed how people thought about God and how thought people thought about church. It changed how people thought about community. It changed how people thought about worship. It changed just people's whole view of life. And the answer to the question, what are we doing here this morning, was changed for people because of the truths which were freshly recovered and declared and preached and believed on during those years. And central to that is the recovery, the rediscovery of the great truth of grace alone. We've looked over the last couple of weeks at the, the truths of Scripture alone and Christ alone, and today we're thinking about grace alone. And the recovery of understanding what grace really means changes the answer to the questions we have. It changes the answer to the question we might give, why are we here and what are we expecting this to achieve? It changes how we think about life, how we think about community, how we think about worship, how we think about church, how we think about God. And my prayer this morning is that we would have a fresh experience of the grace of God. That for those of us who have known God's grace at work in our lives, we would 
again receive God's grace in fresh measure. But for those who, of us who have received God's grace but end up actually living as, as those who haven't, that we'd see with clear eyes again what it means to be those who've received God's grace. And maybe for some you've never known the grace of God. Maybe today is your day when suddenly you see, as so many did 500 years ago, what it means to receive and to know the grace of God. There are so many places in Scripture we could turn to, but we're going to turn to Paul's letter to his friend Titus. It's on page 1199 in uh, these Bibles. And we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 11 down to 14. Father, I pray that as we read these verses and as we then think about them, that you would speak to us, I pray, today, that we would know again what it is to be people who have received the full measure of God's grace in and through and by Jesus Christ. I pray, Jesus, we would see you this morning and would receive from you all that is ours. Lord, I pray for those who maybe have got a bit choked up by the cares of life or just a kind of lack of clarity about these things for clarity to come again. Lord, I pray for those who've never, never known you, Jesus, to step into life and grace in you and to, like Luther experienced, what he described 500 years ago, experiencing, as it were, the gates of paradise being flung open. I pray that would be our experience today, that we'd look on you, Jesus, we'd know your grace at work amongst us. We'd hear the word of God in our hearts. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is the word of the Lord. Question, as we think about this, first thing then, what is grace? What, what is grace? Grace is a word that we use a lot in church. It's a, we've sung about God's grace already this morning. We've prayed about God's grace. If you did a word cloud of all the words that we use on a Sunday morning, grace would fi- figure pretty large, I think, in, in the proportion of words that we use. And the simplest definition, the definition that's often given of grace, is that it is unmerited favor, that it's God giving us what we don't deserve. And that's a great definition, unmerited favor, God giving us what we don't deserve. What we deserve from God actually is, at best, his indifference, at worst, his judgment upon us, but instead of that, what he gives us is grace, freely given to us. It's a great definition, unmerited favor, God giving us what we don't deserve. But I don't know about you, but sometimes that can still feel a little bit slippery to me. It's a bit like kind of trying to grasp hold of a cloud. What, what really does that mean? What does it mean to receive God's unmerited favor? We need to try and ground that a little bit more, try and make it a bit more solid, a bit more tangible. Because how do we know that we are receiving God's grace correctly? How do we know we're laying hold of God's unmerited favor as we're meant to? And how do we know that we're teaching about the grace of God correctly? And what was it that suddenly Luther and others 500 years ago suddenly saw so differently about the grace of God? Because the church had always taught about God's grace. 
It's very easy to fall into a kind of a, a, a stereotypical view of what happened in the Reformation and think that before the Reformation, there was no grace. Nobody taught grace. And then Luther suddenly saw grace and he taught grace and everything changed. And that's not really, that caricature isn't really quite accurate because the medieval church, the church in which Luther grew up, in which he was a monk, in which he labored in, they, that church taught salvation by grace. It, that church taught that salvation only comes to us because of God's mercy, that in the end you can never save yourself simply through your own efforts. It always requires the mercy of God. You can only be served by the mercy of God. You can only be saved by the grace of God. No one really believed you could achieve salvation on your own. So what was so different about what Luther suddenly saw and what the Reformers began to teach and what sparked a revolution throughout the world? The thing was that the grace that was talked about, the grace that was taught, the grace that was believed in, wasn't grace alone. It was always grace plus something else. It was always grace with something, grace alongside something. It wasn't grace alone. And so this statement of the Reformation, grace alone, is the key one. It is grace alone. That's what Luther and the others saw. Grace alone, not grace with something else. It's um, a bit like in the morning. The, when I got up this morning, I have a, my morning routine. My ritual is the first thing I do, I come downstairs and I have a small glass of orange juice, and I have a cod liver oil pill, which I don't know if it makes any difference, but I think it's at least virtuous and maybe keeps the joints lubricated and the brain going with the omega-3 oil. So that's what I do, my orange juice and cod liver oil pill. And then I make a coffee, and I kind of need that coffee. It's an enabler for me to get me going. So at 6 o'clock this morning when I got up and started to think about this morning's message, I wanted that coffee because I needed it to come and help me to be a bit more alert and less sleepy than I otherwise would have been. And the way that grace was taught before the Reformation and the way that we can still so often slip into thinking is that grace is a bit like a shot of strong coffee. It's a kind of a, a spiritual boost to those who want it. It's a kind of enabler. You, you actually want to do the stuff, but you just need a bit of an extra helping hand to enable you to do it. And, and you have this strong coffee in the morning to perk you up, or you have, a, have the grace of God, which kind of helps you to do the thing which you're trying to do anyway. And so teaching grace this way is to put the emphasis really still upon me. What am I doing? What am I doing? So I'm getting up and I'm going about the actions of my day, and the coffee just helps me do that with a little bit more sharpness than it otherwise would. And I'm trying to be a good person, I'm trying to be a good Christian, and grace kind of helps me a little bit to do what I would struggle to do just on my own. That's, that's how grace was taught, and, and that's actually how often we, we can fall into that kind of trap of thinking of grace like that. It's just something which kind of comes alongside us and helps us a little bit. On, uh, I think it was Wednesday evening, Grace and I were, and of course, as I always say, the fact that my wife is called Grace is God's grace to me. It's one of the things I love about her, that she's called Grace. Grace and I were watching uh, a TV program on BBC One called How to Stay Young the other night. Anybody else see that? It's the kind of TV show that middle-aged people like us want to watch. <laughs> because it features middle-aged people, and it's all about how their age, biologically and birth age didn't match up. It's all these unhealthy middle-aged people who might be 50 in terms of when they were born, but their bodies are like 70-year-olds because of how they're living. And 
What do you do to change that? Because you want to stay young. And what do you do to stay young? Well, you just eat more healthily and you exercise more and suddenly your kind of biological age decreases and comes back more to where your chronological age is. And if you do, that's, that's all good. Job done. And that's kind of how grace was being taught before the Reformation. So back, you, you, you want to be godly, okay, well, you need to do this, this, and this, and grace will come and help you to be godly. It's not grace alone. It's about what you're doing with grace helping you. It's not grace. The reality is, to extend the analogy from the TV show a little bit more, the, the reality is that no matter how healthily I eat and however much I exercise, I am going to get old. That's just the reality. Nothing will change that. And grace properly understood isn't just about doing a bit better. Grace, the free gift of God's grace to us, is about total transformation. Receiving the grace of God in our lives isn't looking for God to help us in our efforts. It's not, I need God's grace to help me do better than I otherwise am. No, it's about the grace of God completely transforming who I am. It's about God doing what I am incapable of doing. What, what law does, that biblical word, law, the list of regulations, the standards we try and live to, the checklist we have about do this and do this and do this and then you'll be okay. What, what law does is, is to try and give us constraints to live by that if you do do this, then you'll be better. And if you're better enough, hopefully you might be at some point good enough, but you never actually can be good enough because how do you know that good enough is ever good enough? What grace does is to say it's nothing to do with how good you are. It's all about how good Jesus is. It's a famous phrase of Luther's where he described this. He says, the law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. That's what grace is. It's not just something we a substance which we try and get hold of. It's not a thing which we, like a cup of coffee, to give us a spiritual boost. No, it's something which changes us completely. And so the answer to the question, what is grace, is this, that grace is a free gift. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Think about that word, all. Salvation is offered to all. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, whether you're a 16th century peasant digging turnips out of the mud, whether you're a sophisticated 21st century Western professional, whether you're a prostitute living in some slum on the streets, whoever you are, wherever you come from, the gift is offered to you of God's grace for your salvation. Nothing about what you do, all about what he has done. The grace of God is not just a helping hand. It's not, it's not a thing like a cup of coffee or an exercise regime. It's, it's not God helps those who help themselves. You know, that isn't a Bible verse. It's not. Or, I'll meet God halfway. It's not a Bible verse. That's the old way of law. That's not grace. It's not grace. When, when people say things like that, it, it's, it's the 21st equivalent of the 16th century going to the priest and saying your confession and paying your penance and never actually getting to a place where you know that you're good enough. 
You're never going to meet God halfway. It's never a case of God helps those who help themselves. It's all grace. It's all his doing. Grace, grace is God's personal kindness to us. Actually, grace is Jesus himself coming to us. When we, when we talk about salvation being by grace alone, really it's the same thing as saying that salvation is by Christ alone. It's believing that God has already done it all. This is a free gift, not just a helping hand. That's what grace is. So, second thing, what then does grace accomplish? Let's read verse 12 to 14 again. Grace, it, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. When Luther and the others suddenly said, look, it's grace alone, one of the pushbacks that came was, well, how will people behave? Why would anybody behave righteously if salvation isn't based on righteous behavior? If you're saying that all you need is just to believe in God, in Jesus, what he's done, there's going to be anarchy. Why would anybody bother to behave morally if you don't if behaving morally isn't the condition of you getting saved. So it was a question that was asked, and it's a kind of a leg legitimate question. And, and of course, even today, people would still ask this question in terms of why we are here. Lots of people would say, well, the reason you're here is because you want to be moral people as a kind of a pursuit of morals. That's not grace. It's not how grace works. It's so easy for us to walk away from grace and actually to lead into law. Often in the elders' meetings, we'll kind of joke about this when stuff's happening in church life and we'd like things to be a bit different. And we often will say things like, oh, so much of this grace stuff, just a little bit of law would be really helpful. We could just <laughs> compel people to do a bit more of the things we want them to do rather than just the, the amazing free gift of grace. Let's get the stick of the law out. It's so, so easy to fall into that. But when we do that, what we're actually saying is that Really what we believe is that the law is stronger than grace. And the law is never stronger than grace. Grace is God's free, transforming gift to us. And what Paul says here to Titus is, look, if you understand what grace is, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. How does it do that? The reason that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness is because when we respond to the grace of God, we're not just getting a spiritual espresso to perk us up. No, we're actually laying hold of Jesus Christ himself. We're laying hold of Christ. We are seeing him, we're grasping him, we're feeling him, we're experiencing him. He gives himself to us. And we know what that means. We know that Christ himself is the gift of God to us. We receive grace as a gift because we receive Christ as a gift. We see that it's all about him, that he's the hero, he's the treasure, he's the pearl of great price. And we lay hold of Christ. He's given himself to redeem us, it says here. Look at, compare what uh, Paul says here in Titus to what he says in Romans. In Romans 3, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. 
Good news is this, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, what is the glory which we've fallen short of? Actually, Paul gives the answer in Titus 2.13. The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of God. We have fallen short of that standard. We could never reach God's standard. We always fell short of his glory. Everyone did. Everyone has. But grace comes to us as a gift and declares us to be justified and righteous and to God's standard because we've been redeemed by Christ and we're now counted as righteous and him. And the glory and grace we receive are found in Christ, in him, himself. And we're united with Christ. We're married to him, and we want to be like him. And that's why grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's why grace is actually much more effective than law. Law can make you behave in certain ways, but it doesn't change your heart. Grace changes us. It transforms us. It's revolutionizing. We have an eagerness now to do what is good because he is good. Look what it says there in verse 14 of Titus 2, that he's redeemed a people for his very own. We're his own. We belong to him. We're glued to him, cemented to him. And of course, then we want to live like him because we are eternally going to be like him. 1 John 3, 2, we shall, see him as, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's our destiny. You come in faith to Jesus Christ and your eternal destiny is to be like him. And of course now, in the world, here now, whether you're a 16th century peasant drinking turnips, digging turnips out of the mud, or whether you're a sophisticated 21st century Western professional, or whether you're a prostitute who's rescued off the street, what you want to do is to live now like you will eternally live, which is to live like Jesus because you're glued to him because of his amazing grace to you. His grace has been poured out upon you, and you want to reflect that in how you live. You don't need a spiritual espresso. You need Jesus. And so if you're, if you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're struggling with sin issues in your life, what you, you don't need law. What you need is Jesus. You need more of Jesus. You need a, a bigger revelation of who he is and what he's done for you, what the transformation of grace means. That's what you need. Because it is, third thing, it is grace alone. It is grace alone. You come to Jesus in faith and you will never be more righteous than you are at that moment. The moment when the gates of paradise swing over when, open, when it, that moment when you have that feeling of being born again, you'll never be more right before God than you are then. You'll never be more righteous. You'll never be more blameless in his sight. But we are called to become more Christ-like. We're called to be sanctified, to become increasingly like Jesus. Our, our behavior actually is meant to conform more and more to Christ-like behavior. It, it, it should. That's what's meant to happen as we mature as Christians. But that there's this difference between behavior and status. Your status is secure. By grace you are saved. By grace you are justified. By grace you are declared righteous. That's settled. That's set. Our behavior, yeah, all of us, even if you're a mature, godly Christian, there's still times you sin, of course. But our behavior is meant to increasingly conform to the pattern of Christ. Luther told, us, told a story to 
illustrate this in all these disputes that were happening. He told a story about a king who marries a prostitute. And the point of Luther's story was this, that the moment the king marries a prostitute, she ceases to be a prostitute and she becomes a princess. Her status is changed at that moment. She is a different woman because she now has the status of the king. She is the king's wife. She's no longer a prostitute. She's the princess in the king's household. But there's things about her behavior that have to change. There's a process of her learning what it means to be a princess and acting like a princess, behaving like a princess. And Luther's point is, that's how it is with grace. God's grace comes to us and you're transformed. You'll never be more righteous. Your status is righteous. Your status is as Christ. That when the Father looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of his Son. It's grace alone. And then grace propels us into imitating Jesus our Savior, reflecting him. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. We are not going to stand, hallelujah, we're not going to stand before God on the basis of our own merits. If we did, it would only be judgment and wrath and hell for us. We will stand before God on the basis of the merit of Christ. It's grace alone. It's grace alone. So, to return to where we started, why are we here this morning? Actually, the answer is grace. It's the grace of God that we're here today. And as we gather as the people of God and as we go about our lives in the world during the week, we're to, we are to cultivate the habits, practices of grace. What does it mean to be people who have received the grace of God, to live in the grace of God, who are freed by the grace of God, liberated by the grace of God? We, we cultivate habits of grace, practices of grace. It means that we, we are not conformed to the pattern of the world. It means that we are liberated to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age because we're waiting for the blessed hope. We're waiting for Jesus, our bridegroom, to come to us and bring us into the full expression of the salvation that is ours. We're we're no longer those who are declared to have fallen short of the glory of God. We are those who've laid hold of the glory of God because Christ has come to us by his grace. And so we're to live in grace. And we're called to be a community of grace. That we're people who together celebrate the grace of God. That we don't become embarrassed about how often we use this word. But we use this word again and again and more and more because we are so amazed at God's grace to us. And we're a community that knows what that means in terms of how we treat one another that there's grace amongst us and grace for one another because God has been so gracious to us that we don't fall into the normal legalistic judgmental pattern of the world because man we should have been judged but God has been gracious to us and so we are liberated to be gracious to one another a community of grace and we're to hunger for grace not as those who've never tasted it, but as those who desire just to devour more and more of what is ours in its fullness. We come together so we might together experience again that we might feed one another on God's grace. That as we worship, as we pray, as we prophesy, as we listen to the word of God expounded, we receive again grace to us. We celebrate it. We chew on it. We devour it again we hunger for God's grace because we know it's by grace alone that we have been saved we worship 
we delight in the grace of God. How amazing that the king should rescue people like us. How amazing that he should come to people like me and someone like you and say, my grace is for you, a free gift, unearned, given, not, not, not just something to help you do a bit better, but something to transform you. And so we worship and we delight in the grace of God. And then we go with the message of grace. We go to the worlds and we point them to Jesus and say there is grace for you because salvation grace is available for all peoples and it doesn't matter who you are and where you've come from and what your background is and what your story is. This is an offer of grace for all. Salvation for all is offered. The gift is available for all. Just believe in Jesus and you can be transformed by the grace of God as well. And so we are a people who are called to this adventure of going into the world and pointing people to Jesus Christ and his amazing grace. And we are a people called to purity because grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And we're a people called to compassion because God's grace enables us, equips us to be compassionate to others. It's all about the grace of God. It's grace, grace, grace alone. Amen. Let's pray. Grace comes to us through Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, his carrying of our sin, his bearing of the wrath of God, so that we might be declared righteous, blameless in the sight of God. The way that we experience this, feel this, taste this, lay hold of this, grasp this, is by the activity of the Holy Spirit in us. Yesterday, some of us were here for the Essentials training course we're doing, and we were talking about the person of the Holy Spirit and what it is to be filled, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and might be that some, maybe many of us here this morning need to know a fresh filling of the Spirit of God, that we're not meant to be dry as Christians. Jesus promised living water poured out. And it uh, might be that you need to have a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit so you again can tangibly grasp what it means to receive the grace of God. It might be that actually you've fallen into kind of a sort of legalism where you have just been seeing the grace of God as something you ask God's help in to enable you to do the things you're trying to do anyway rather than seeing it as grace alone, a thing that just makes you completely different. And so I want to, want to pray for us. I want to pray for a fresh measure of God's grace. I want to pray for an infilling of the Holy Spirit. If you're dry, if you're thirsty, reach out to God. And let's believe for him to meet us, to fill us, to refresh us, to fill us again with joy and peace. Reality of his presence amongst us. Yeah, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and you would move upon us. Thank you that you are here. <coughs> Why are we here, Lord? We're here because you are. We gather together knowing that you meet with us. We gather to you. Jesus, we come to you, the one who came for us to redeem us, rescue us, brought us out of the dead end treadmill life we would otherwise have been stuck on and have brought us into this flow of your grace which 
will carry us for all eternity in the presence of God. Thank you that you've made us your very own, King Jesus. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would be poured out again on those who are dry, on those whose sails have grown slack, who need to be reoriented to the breath of God. Come breathe on us, breath of God, fill us again. Your presence, your nearness. Lord, thank you that our faith isn't its not just a mental ascent, but it's a fully embodied, visceral thing that we know Jesus, we experience Jesus, we feel God's presence in our lives. We know we're to know streams of living water flowing in us. I pray, Spirit of God, that you'd release fresh rivers amongst us this morning as a people who've responded to the grace of God. If you've never known that, if you've never come to Jesus before, I just invite you now. Now is the moment for you that you're not excluded from this. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That includes you. If that's you, if you want to receive this offer of salvation today, just in your heart, say to Jesus, Jesus, believe in you, put my faith in you, trust you, turn to you. just a moment he can make you new fling open the gates of paradise for you one of the ways that we tangibly express our faith in Jesus is by taking communion, taking the bread and the wine together. And as we do that, we focus on what Jesus has accomplished for us. That he really did die on a cross on our behalf, carry the weight of our sins, that he really was raised to new and glorious and everlasting life, that he really is reigning in heaven, that he really is going to return for his people, his bride, his body, for us. And so we celebrate the death of Christ as a real historical event, the act that has enabled us to come to God. We emphasize the completed work of Christ. There's nothing more to be done. That grace, his grace to us is complete and it's sufficient. It's grace alone by which we're saved. And so as we uh, come back to worship, as we come back to singing, praising Jesus, let's Let's come and take the bread and the wine together. There's the four stations around the room. And let's come in faith. Say, so we're coming to you, Jesus, believing it's grace alone. Your work on the cross is sufficient. It's enough for me. There's nothing else I need to do. There's nothing else I could do. It's all about what you've done. It might be that you particularly want prayer for something. Scripture teaches us that often we receive the infilling of the spirit as other spirit-filled believers lay their hands on us and it might be that you want a fresh touch of God and if that's the case I encourage you to go to the stations at the back and there'll be people there who'd love to pray for you and minister God's grace to you let's stand let's worship let's take the bread and wine let's enjoy the grace of God together again